so far, all the nations we've talked about and all the nations that we will talk about in future episodes have been touched by conflict. War, revolutions, uprisings, all these things are part of the history and you would be hard-pressed to find any nation that hasn't had its share of dark times. But the country we're looking at today has an especially tumultuous history of struggle and setbacks. But I hope that after today's episode, you, the listener, will have a deeper understanding and appreciation of a nation that has been ravaged by centuries of conflict and is trying their best to grow into a better, safer country. So let's take a look at the West African country of Angola. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying the Eat the podcast that delves into different cultures in the world throughout time while exploring the different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, good eating, and fascinating stories, then I have a great show in store for you, so make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. Healthline states CBD oil can be used for anxiety and depression. Furthermore, in one study, 57 men received either oral CBD or a placebo 90 minutes before they underwent a simulated public speaking test. The researchers found that a 300 milligram dose of CBD was the most effective at significantly reducing anxiety during the test. So when you want high-quality CBD, legal in all states, order thetailoredhemp.com. Now on with the show. I have to get this out of the way before we talk about anything else. We need to discuss the shape of Angola. Now, if you look at it on a world map, you're going to find a country on the Atlantic coast of Africa, south of the Democratic Republic of Congo, east of Zambia, and north of Nambia. Now, I imagine some of you haven't looked at a map of Africa recently, and that's okay. It's not like something I do every day either. I had, in order to write this episode, so I'll remind you that the that above the Democratic Republic of the Congo is the Republic of the Congo without the democracy. I bring this up because looking at a map, you wouldn't think that Angola and the Republic of the Congo share a border. The Democratic Congo sneaks in between them. But if you zoom in real close, Angola actually has this piece of land between the two Congos. It's an enclave called Carabinda. It's completely separate from the rest of Angola. Now, to us, this might seem a little strange since most borders today usually have continuous lines and they're not broken up. But this little, uh, this little enclave uh, actually serves a very important purpose, which we'll get into, so, so just hold on to that thought. While Angola is considered tropical, most of the country is taken up by coastal plain and patches of arid highlands the largest, which is the uh, B Plateau. Up until the 19th century, Angola used to be the home of dense rainforest. Today, due to agriculture and logging, those forests have been greatly depleted, and now you'll find mostly savannas and grasslands. Quite different from the secret island paradises we've been talking about recently, I know. But these grasslands are still brim- brimming with life, and if you're looking for a great place to go on a safari, I recommend you check out Angola. Just make sure that you get the appropriate vaccines before you visit. Now, the official language of Angola is Portuguese. The people speak many different languages, most branching from the Bantu language tree. 
It's tricky for me to say some of these names, so just bear with me. The largest ethnolinguistic group is the Ovenbundu, who speak Umbundu and account for about one-fourth of the population. The next largest ethnic group is the Mbundu, who speak Kimbundu, and who also make up about a fourth of the population. Other smaller tribes live scattered through the thinly populated eastern part of the country, spilling over into the Democratic Republic of Congo and Zambia. Now, if you caught on to the fact that I said the official language of Angola is Portuguese, and thought it seemed a little weird, then thanks for paying attention. I really appreciate it. So now's a good time to get into the part of the episode where we expose Angola's long, well-recorded, and fascinating origin story. Or do we? You see, not much is really known about Angola prior to the 15th century, and there's a reason for that. But luckily, I've got a friend who's a bit of an expert on the subject, given that she grew up in Angola, and she helped me fill in a lot of the blanks. In fact, she critiqued and emailed me notes on the script. Lots of notes. <sighs> but I'm thankful. Historians believe that Angola has been inhabited since the Paleolithic era. The first people to arrive in the region of Angola were the Khoi and the San. Nomadic tribes of hunter-gatherers settled there as far back as 1000 BC. These early visitors did not cultivate crops or keep animals. I can't imagine how well they managed to thrive off of what they could catch and pick, but through human ingenuity, the Khoi and San struck, stuck around and they populated much of Angola and still do today. Eventually, they managed to work out how to forge iron. While they were busy with that, another group of visitors, the Bantu, migrated from the north into the highlands Emerging out of the Congo. Unlike the Khoi and the San, the Bantu were cultivators and they brought bananas, taro, cattle, and sheep to the highland plains of Angola. Eventually, the Kingdom of Congo was established. The kingdom spanned from the north part of Angola to the southernmost part of Gabon, including the two Congos that we know today. They began with the marriage of Nima Anan. Zimba and Lokeni Lo Ana Sanzia. I'm sure I nailed that. <laughs> Their fourth child, Luke Ilu Amini, born in 1367, became the founder of the Kingdom of Congo when he conquered the Kingdom of Miwina Kabunga. The Kingdom of Congo ruled for over 200 years unopposed, consisting of social structure that was divided into an upper class, a lower class, and slaves. The kingdom was made up of several provinces, each ruled over by a governor that took orders from the king. These governors would then appoint other officials. The economy of the kingdom centered mostly on ivory, palm wine, animal products, and crops like millet. They even had a working messenger service, a tax system, and a judicial process. You know, sometimes I think history often overlooks things like this. History books would have you believe that until European settlers like the Spanish and the English came along, the native people of the world were living in the Stone Age. <laughs> Man, that's just not true. For many natives around the world, including the Bantu, they thrived and they grew in their own societies. 
Sometimes I wonder what the world would be like today if the European explorers just minded their own business. Well, no 4th of July fireworks for sure. Portuguese explorer Diego Cao, ran, he set foot on Angola in 1484, exploring the coast from Congo to Nambia. But this was not the first time the Portuguese had made contact with Angolans. It happened a year prior when Portugal established dip diplomatic relations with the Kingdom of Congo. The Portuguese established several other settlements, some ports and trading posts along the Angolan coast, principally trading in the Angolan slaves for plantations. I have to say allegedly here because I was told that there's not a lot of written history in this period, and when we talk about slaves, then they take it very personal. And while let's say that there were slaves there, they allegedly were traded by the Portuguese and the Angolans. So local slave dealers provide a large number of slaves for the Portuguese empire, usually in exchange for manufactured goods from Europe. During the 17th and 18th centuries, Angola was the largest Portuguese slave trading base. Allegedly. <laughs> I tickle myself. I can't help it. People were also enslaved through inter-African conflicts such as civil wars in the Congo after 1665 and conflicts that occurred during the rise of the Great Lunda Empire after 1750 in Dimbu region between Congo and Matamba and on the B Plateau. Population losses were considerable and the, de uh, and the uh, demography was very badly distorted. Censuses from the late 18th century show that there were twice as many adult females as males. Between 1580 and 1680, over a million slaves were sent to Brazil, allegedly. Life for European colonists was difficult and progress was slow. The slave trade was also one of the factors that led to the fall of Angola's early empire and included the Kingdom of Congo, but it was not the only reason. The King of Congo converted to Christianity shortly after the Portuguese first arrived in the 15th century. And that basically solidified Christianity as the major religion for Angola. Even today, the most predominant religion in, of Angola is Roman Catholicism. On top of that, there were those civil wars that I mentioned earlier. I can imagine it might have been a little hard to run a kingdom when you've recently converted and your subjects are fighting each other. <laughs> that might be a bit much. Despite Portugal's territorial claims in Angola, its control over much of the country's vast interior was minimal. In the 16th century, Portugal gained control of the coast through a series of treaties and wars. Portuguese literacy in European customs were spreading quickly, and as the Portuguese pushed their influence further into Angola, they found that the only way they could gain more land was by taking it from kingdoms that, were, that ruled over it. In 1617, after a war with the Nandong Kingdom, they had accumulated a significant amount of territory, but there was still disputes over slaves and trade, allegedly. With no other direction to go, the Portuguese just washed their hands and moved on to the next battle. It was a vicious cycle, but it seemed to work. By 1670, Portuguese expansion was largely over, though the unchecked issues with trade and commerce followed in their wake. The only saving grace they had was the slave trade. 
You guys remember that strange little piece of Angola separated from the rest of the country that I mentioned earlier? To remind you, it's called Cambinda, and in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was a major center of trade and exports. At that time, slaves were an important commodity. For a long time, natives were taken from Angola and sent over to the New World, but mostly to Brazil, the other large Portuguese territory. You know, we covered that in, um, in another episode. So there, they would produce coffee, cotton, coca, and sugar and send it back to Angola, which would then be shipped to Portugal. Now, technically speaking, the export of slaves was banned in Angola in 1836, but the trade itself didn't end. The Brazilian market was still open, and it wouldn't officially close until about 20 years later in the 1850s. In 1875, slavery was abolished in the Portuguese Empire, but it remained intact in Angola in different thinly disguised forms until 1911, and in some cases, all the way to the 60s, the 1960s. The Industrial Revolution brought new imports of metal and cloth goods, effectively reorganizing the economy of Angola. Instead of producing these goods themselves, it was actually cheaper to buy the imported items. Because of this, most of Angola's exports suddenly turned into commodities such as peanuts, rubber, honey, and ivory. This was a good thing. Aside from the slave trade officially losing its traction and finally coming to an end, that line of business did not affect the communities of Angola from an economical standpoint. With the popularity of these new trade goods, the whole population of Angola became employed in production and transport. Hundreds of thousands of people started making money. As wealth increased and people became more involved, new trades of business started to open for the natives and the colonials alike. The Ovimbundu turned from slave raiding long-distance trade, and their caravans penetrated as far east as, east as the East African coast. The Chakwa were expert hunters in elephants and collectors of wax and rubber, which they made their own special exported goods. Although, when they opened up to the world, there were a few problems that rose up as well. The Chakwa, with their ivory, rubber, and wax, accumulated firearms, with they, which they, in turn, used to overthrow the Lunda Empire in the 1880s. Commoners started to become richer, and places like the Kamsing Kingdom started to demand a stronger voice in their government, leading to the collapse. On the coast, where Portuguese colonialism was the strongest, plantations of coffee and coca still used native labor as a means of growing and harvesting their product. This without mentioning the fisheries and mines that natives were also laboring in starting in the early 1900s. As far as I can tell, this all started with the Portuguese. They came and completely changed the entire country for just a few hundred years, in some good ways and in some very, very bad ways. Kingdoms were abolished and Portuguese worked directly through chiefs, headsmen, and African policemen. Conversions to Christianity increased and by 1940, there were about a million Christians in Angola, some three-fourths of them Roman Catholics. Angola natives were taxed and subjected to forced labor and forced cultivation with a stringent set of tests imposed on the few non-white assimilated persons, uh, we'll say that in quote, the assimilated persons, who applied to be exempt from these impositions. 
It might seem like the tight grip of that Portugal hat on Angola was destined to last forever. Of all of the Portuguese territories, Angola was the richest in natural resources, so it made sense that they'd stick around. But as we've learned over the past episodes, sometimes history just doesn't make sense. In fact, Portugal's influence in Angola had greatly diminished by 1920, save from a remote colony in the southeast. It seemed only fitting that Angola would start a revolution in 1961 following the example of their neighbors to the north in Congo against the Belgians. This revolt was a lot different compared to the American Revolution, as I would usually think of in situations like this. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that this comes to mind. But this was a war based on guerrilla tactics rather than traditional battle etiquette. Land alienation and forced labor sparked rebellion in the coffee zone, while the Quango Valley, the peasants rose up against forced cotton cultivation. An attack on the prison of Luanda was led by frustrated Creoles. To contain the revolt, the Portuguese deployed large numbers of troops and set up strategic hamlets, and by encouraging Portuguese peasants to immigrate to Angola, raised the European population by about 330,000 by 1974. The Portuguese tried to placate the Angolans by trying to build a better relationship, so they abolished forced cultivation, forced labor, and the stringent test to gain assimilated status. Now tell me, was it that nice? No more forced labor. So, they also improved education, health, social welfare services, and protected peasants from land alienation. This didn't work out like they intended, and the economy entered into another sustained boom. The standard living rose, and the very people of the Portuguese that they were fighting against just became richer. But the biggest help for Angolan independence was actually from somewhere completely different. The first movement for independence, led by a group of revolutionaries called the Front, National Front of the Liberation of Angola, or FNLA for short, obtained aid from the United States and China. Similarly, the Portuguese Communist Party, which was founded in 1956, drew foreign support from the Soviet Union and helped to establish another liberation movement called the Popular Movement for the Liberation of Angola, or the MPLA. Basically, what we're looking at is the Cold War in Angola. There was also a third liberation movement, the National Union of the Total Independence of Angola, or UNITA, UNITA, that managed to get by with hardly any foreign support, though China did supply some aid. The problem was that even though these three movements were fighting for the same cause, they were also fighting each other. In fact, because the movement couldn't find any stable ground in Angola, the Portuguese managed to get a leg up on the revolution in the early 1970s. It was only when a military coup in Portugal that overthrew their own dictatorship in 1974 did they finally lose their hold on Angola. When this happened, it affected all three liberation movements. Dealing with their own struggle in their own land, the Portuguese were tired of war and officially withdrew from Angola in 1975. But when they left, they didn't formally hand over the ruling power to any movement. Unable to form a united front after the coup, the FNLA and the UNITA 
were greatly diminished. The only group that remained strong was the MPLA, who continued to receive support from the Soviet Union and Cuba. The MPLA essentially forced the other two movements to flee from Angola and took control of the capital city of Luanda. While the MPLA was establishing themselves as a governing body in Angola, the FNLA and the UNITA movements tried to call on the South African allies for help. They probably weren't counting on the Communist Party to send around 40,000 troops from Cuba to defend the MPLA. Fun fact, Che Guevara, a, a name that we should all recognize as the major figure in the Cuban Revolution, was part of the expeditionary force. After suppressing another coup in 1977, South Africans and nationalist sympathizers were purged and the country of Angola emerged as a communist entity. If you look at the Angolan flag today, you'll probably notice that there's a little similarity to the flag of the USSR. The only thing is, a communist economy did not do well in Angola and was mess, met by disastrous results. There's one major exception for this. Oil. Managed by foreign companies, the oil industry boomed in Angola, growing rapidly enough to enable Angola to stave off economic and military collapse. Once again, this is where Cabinda, <laughs> I apologize. Let me go over that again. Once again, this is where Cabinda comes in. This small section of Angola was once more the center for product and trade. Instead of dealing with slavery, they had their hands in oil and gas. Now, you might think that this is where the conflict ends, but guess what? It's just not that simple. This was during the Cold War, after all. The FNLA eventually withered away in exile, and the UNITA, which had always been the most popular out of the three movements, began receiving military aid from the United States. Fighting returned to Angola in 1987, as both the MPLA and the UNITA campaigned for control of the country and its vast oil reserves. Everything was at a stalemate, and sooner or later they needed to arrive at some kind of agreement. And they did just that. In 1988, South Africa agreed to stop supporting UNITA, and Cuba withdrew their troops from Angola. Left on their own, two opposing parties had to take matters into their own hands. The two leaders at the time, Santos and Samambi, met for negotiations in 1989, and everything came to a ceasefire. The Communist Party was losing popularity in Europe and Africa, so the MLPA changed their tune and produced a new constitution that included elections and participation by all, including UNITA, or UNITA. Elections were held in 1992 under the United Nations supervision, and Santos was elected president. Then the MPLA gained a majority in the parliament, but UNITA made a strong showing, especially on the B Plateau. Charging election fraud, UNITA renewed the Civil War while its delegates were in Luanda were massacred in popular uprisings that many believe had government backing. Wow, what a mess of worms here, you know? I mean, it just never ends for these guys. At the end of 1992, UNITA controlled approximately two-thirds of the country, including valuable diamond mines that were used to pay for the continuing cost of the war. Fighting raged through 1993 as the government gradually regained territory and won greater support abroad. Both 
South Africa and the United States recognized the government of Angola in 1993, as did the United Kingdom by ending an arms embargo that ex had existed since 1975. Meanwhile, international pressure mounted on the two sides to reach a peaceful solution. Sanctions against UNITA were imposed by the UN in September 1993 after it disregarded a ceasefire that it had accepted, but it appeared that UNITA could continue the war for some time with its vast stockpile of weapons. Eventually, an agreement was called the Lusaka Accord, Lusaka Accord, was signed by the government and UNITA on November 20, 1994. This agreement allowed UNITA to be reintegrated into the government, providing fighting ceased on that day. Although minor fighting between the two groups continued, Santos and Samvimba, Samvimbi met several times over the next three years to resolve issues relating to the final form of the combined government. In August 1996, Samvimbi finally agreed to accept the title of leader of the opposition but he declined to attend the ceremony in April 1997 at which UNITA delegates formally get united and joined the government. Relations between the two groups were further complicated that year by a civil war in the Democratic Republic of Congo. UNITA supported the crumbling Syrian regime because the group had been able to transport its diamonds through the country while the Angolan government supported the vicious rebels led by Lahonkabiya. How do you like that one? Today, the hostility between UNITA and the Angolan government still exists, and the delegates of UNITA have been expelled from the government. With the killing of Samvimbi by government forces in February 2002, talks again between the UNITA leadership and the government finally culminated in a peace agreement. Although the country breathed a collective sigh of relief with the end of the 27 years of civil war, the Angolan government was facing a daunting challenge of rebuilding the country's physical and social welfare infrastructure, which most of it had just been completely destroyed. In the early 21st century, there were repeated outbreaks of illness, such as cholera, due to the, to the poor sanitary conditions. It's estimated that the Civil War had displaced more than 4 million people and hundreds of thousands of Angolan refugees still needed to be resettled in the country, not to mention that thousands of landmines were strong haphazardly through the country during the conflict. They still have their oil industry, though, and although Cambodina did demand their own independence, a peace agreement was reached with the separatists in 2006. Peace seems to have finally come to Angola, and now it looks like they can look forward to the future. They've got a long way to go, and the struggle isn't over yet. But I sincerely hope that everything is going to turn out okay. Bantu burial traditions. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> okay, now let's, let's backtrack a little. Earlier I mentioned the Bantu people found mostly in southeastern Africa. But like I said, Angola is the most populated by the Bantu as well. So, let's delve a little deeper into their customs and traditions, particularly the interesting burial practices that have managed to persist through all the centuries. The Bantu did believe in gods and tell a good story of the origin of death involving a chameleon and a lizard. God sent this chameleon to tell man that he would not die, 
and be allowed to live forever. But the chameleon moved slowly. And when the chameleon stopped to eat, the lizard, who was much faster, ran ahead and told man he was going to die, essentially dooming all of mankind to permanent death. Today, chameleons and lizards are considered bad omens. Many Bantu stories center around personified talking animals. Another prominent character is the hare, a symbol of skill and speed, and the tortoise. Those two characters sound familiar, then you've really been paying attention. That's right, the Bantu stories very well possibly could be the origin of the tortoise and the hare. Aside from the talking animals and their god, the Bantu mostly worship their ancestors. So much of that is a goal to become an ancestor after the death in the world of the dead. The Bantu were very suspicious and believed that the, well I say that they were, I'm going to say that they are still very suspicious. And they believe that the spirits of the dead can linger in the world of the living as long as someone remembers them. These spirits can even communicate with the living through dreams, omens, and through mystical figureheads like seers. It wasn't a one-way road. Keep in mind, the living can enter the world of the dead by chance if they were hunting porcupine or another kind of burrowing animal, since the world of the dead was underground. The Bantu also believe in man-eating monsters like orgs and zombies. But, you know, we're not going to get into that because that sounds like a different podcast. So, Bantu burial ceremonies is a very sacred ritual and must be done right in order for the dead to pass on to the spirit world instead of becoming this wandering ghost. Basically, it comes down to how confused they are to make the decision whether the deceased ghost finds its way home or not. Dead bodies must be removed through a hole in the wall in the house, feet first, rather than head first, or through the front door. And, once they're removed from the house, they have to be carried in a zigzag path to the burial site, so that the spirit doesn't know how to get back. Since the spirit doesn't leave the body until after it's buried, it's very important that they're confused when they're laid to rest. Once at the burial site, an animal is killed at to cleanse the site and the personal belongings are buried with the dead. But the tradition doesn't stop there. The windows of the house where the dead ha- where the death happened are smeared with ash and any pictures turned around and all reflective objects and surfaces are covered. Even the bed of the deceased is removed. The Bantu hold most of their funerals in the early morning before the sun rises as sorcerers are said to sleep in the morning and move around in the afternoon looking for the corpses to bring back to life. Now, some families have plots for burying their dead next to their houses, but a corpse would never be buried in a field, as it's believed that anything planted there would not grow. After the funeral and ritual, the family of the deceased go back home to eat and perform another ritual to cleanse the house to ward off evil. Finally, for at least a week after the burial, no one can leave the house, socialize, or talk too loudly, or the spirits will not be called back home. They are expected to wear black and mourn for a certain amount of time. For instance, widows are expected to mourn for six months to a year, while children are expected to mourn for three months. The whole thing may seem very extensive and detached, but keep in mind that the Bantu are very respectful of their ancestors, and these rituals are meant to help guide their loved ones to the right path in the world of the dead. It's done out of love and respect. It's a small price to pay for a family and their friends to make sure that they rest in peace. 
All right, now we're up to my favorite part. Time to make the meal. This week, we're making dos de coco, a West African dish that's common to in the previous colonies of Portugal. It's literally sweet coconut in name and form. While the directions ingredients look simple, don't underestimate them. Take your time and make it right the first time. Also, hats off to my friend, Marcia Mayeli, native Angolian, and she said my interpretation of this dish was delicious, but when I told her that this is a language I could learn, she corrected me. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just messing with you, Marcia. You are fantastic. Thanks. I really do appreciate you, and I appreciate all the conversations we have. When you start now with a recipe, be ready. You can't walk away from this one. It makes roughly two fluid ounce servings. So grate one or two fresh coconuts, enough to make one and a half cups of fresh coconut shavings. If you don't have fresh coconuts, of course, you can use the, the unsweetened stuff in the bag. So once you get your one and a half cups, set it aside. Place three quarters cup of water over high heat. Stir in three quarters cup of granulated sugar. Stir until the sugar is completely dissolved. Next, stir in the coconut. Turn the heat to medium-high and cook it for about 10 minutes. Stir it frequently. While that's cooking, whip six egg yolks and set them aside. Okay, listen. Because this is the point where you can take on glory or cuss because you didn't do the first one. Take the pot off the heat and put it aside for two minutes. Cut your heat down to medium-low. Place the pot back over the heat. Now you're going to stir in these eggs into the syrup slowly. Listen to what I said. Slowly. If you go too fast, you're just going to have scrambled eggs and coconut, which I guess you can eat, but that's not what we're going for here. Stir constantly as the mixture will become thicker and thicker. Cook in while stirring for about five minutes, and you're going to have a thick custard. Remove from the heat and put in a bowl, and then sprinkle liberally with cinnamon. Now, look, you can serve this hot or cold. It's going to be good for a while. Trust me, if you like coconut, it's delicious. I've been Scott Parrish. I've been Scott Parrish. <laughs> I am Scott Parrish, and I am your host. And while that was funny, I'm not going to leave you without the dad joke either. So let me ask you something. What's the easiest way to make an apple turnover? Push it down a hill. <laughs> So, thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you enjoyed this episode in learning about a country that's been through a lot in the past hundred years or so, past few hundred years, and they're really trying to make their best out of the most of what they have. This show is made possible by listeners like you. I'd like to give a special shout out to Silver Surfer, 1977, Galadina, 1552, and Jennifer Tan. Your support drives the show, and we really enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Dying to Eat Podcast. Let us know what topics you want to hear about. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like, a five-star rating, and don't forget to hit that follow button to be updated on the next episode. Until next time, stay lively. <laughs>